Hello, 5 by listeners, and welcome to another episode of your favorite board game podcast. This week, Meeple Lady gets happy with happy pigs, Christy gets a second chance in Second Chance, Ruel becomes a quadruped in Quadropolis, Ruth gets extra tiny in Tiny Towns, and I get choosy with some Choice of Games interactive fiction titles. Hi friends, today we're building cities one block at a time in Quadropolis, a game by Francois Gandon with art by Cyril Dajon and Sabrina Miramon. Released by Days of Wonder in 2016, Quadropolis is a tile lane and set collection game for 2-4 to four players. The game lasts about 30-45 to 45 minutes. Each player has their own 4x4 city mat, with quadrants numbered 1-4 through four that they'll place city tiles onto. You also have 4 architects, each numbered 1-4. to four. On your turn, place one of your architects on the side of the construction site board, which is a grid filled with randomly placed tiles. Your architect points to the row or column that you're selecting a tile from. The number of your architect indicates which tile you're taking. So, if you place the number 3 architect adjacent to the second row in the construction site, then you'll take the third tile in that row. You then place the urbanist pawn on the space where the tile was. The urbanist limits what you can take, since no tile can be taken from the same row or column as the urbanist. You place your selected tile into the matching quadrant on your city mat, and receive any resources listed, either energy or people. You'll use these resources to activate your tiles so they can be scored at the end of the game. Tiles placed in your city score differently, such as the tower block, which is based on how many you stack on each other, or the shops, which are scored depending on how many people you place in them. The round ends after all players have placed their four architects. After four rounds, points are scored based on the activated tiles in your city. The most points wins. Quadropolis is an excellent city-building game, one that I always enjoy when it hits the tabletop. The gameplay is deceptively easy. You're placing an architect where you want to take a tile, and then taking that tile. This is where the main tension of the game comes from. You're hoping that your opponents don't take the exact tile you want, but you're also hoping that they don't take from the row or column that you want one from, since they'll place the urbanist pawn there. You can't point your architect at the urbanist, and that pesky urbanist prohibits you from taking a tile from its row and column. It feels a bit like topiary here, with your placement affecting future turns. As the round progresses, and more architects are laid next to the board, you'll have fewer spots to choose from, since you can't place your architect on top of another one. More often than not, you'll be going to your plan B or plan C, as tiles are taken and architects take up more spaces. And you're also hoping that your tiles can synergize with your previously placed tiles. As mentioned earlier, tower blocks are scored based on how many are stacked on top of each other, and shops are scored based on how many people you place on them. Public service buildings score points based on how many of your districts has at least one of them. Factories score points for each factory or harbor they're adjacent to. A harbor scores points for their longest continuous row and or column. Finally, parks score points if they're adjacent to tower blocks. And parks can also absorb pollution. You may place one energy cube onto each park in your city, thus saving yourself a point since leftover people or energy are negative one point each. The set collection in Quadropolis reminds me of Between Two Cities. With six different types of buildings, you have a few different options to gain those precious victory points. You'll have to be flexible in your strategy, though, since you typically won't be able to focus on one type of building. But this is a much different beast than Between Two Cities. While that game has a semi-cooperative feel to it, Quadropolis is all about your city. There are times when you may do a little hate drafting, or at the very least blocking your opponents through what you take and where you leave the urbanist. Along with the puzzle of selecting and placing city tiles, and the set collection for scoring, 
There is a resource management aspect too, since you're required to activate tiles with various resources, people or energy, in order for them to be able to score. There is an expert mode included in the game as well. The expert city map is a 5x5 grid and includes 5 districts that you'll place your buildings in. However, instead of your own architects, you're drawing from a pool of common architects. So, if 3 other players have used the number 2 architect, you'll have to figure out if you want to use that last one or not. Expert mode also includes two new types of buildings, office towers and monuments. These provide more scoring opportunities, and you'll have to plan a bit more carefully to score them. I've played expert mode a few times, and while it can be a bit more puzzly, I enjoy both modes equally. Like Days of Wonders flagship title Ticket to Ride, Quadropolis is a game that can be enjoyed by a wide range of gamers. It's easy to learn, but it has more meat on its bones than other gateway games. It's a great next step game for newer gamers, and also a satisfying filler for those who are more experienced. Unlike Ticket to Ride, Quadropolis is an underrated game, one worth seeking out. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about choice of games. I gave very serious thought to discussing something other than a physical tabletop game this week. It's slightly outside the bounds of our charter, but I hope in the next five minutes I can open your life up to a fascinatingly different kind of solo game that hopefully will change the way you think about immersion and interactive narratives. Like a lot of people in my age cohort, I've voraciously read choose-your-own-adventure books in elementary school. The very concept of a book I could totally control blew my mind as a kid. There are some earlier examples of this kind of published storytelling, but Edward Packard's 1979 novel Cave of Time really launched an entire genre. Ken Andre's excellent Tunnels and Trolls RPG system is from four years earlier, and most of those are solo playable. There's a great new app for them if you're interested. I'll include it in the show notes. But TNT is really more of a straight dungeon crawl RPG than a narrative adventure. You also might be familiar with Infocom's groundbreaking text adventure computer game Zork from 1980, and while primitive by our modern sense of interactive fiction, it's still a great story and a fun adventure, though very finicky and, I think, difficult to interact with. And another early title, 1984's Lone Wolf solo RPG, pulls together a lot of these elements from the earlier projects and really feels more like contemporary IF. There's also a good free app of that called The Kai Chronicles, which I'll include in the show notes as well. So interactive fiction is, at this point, nothing new. And if you look in your phone's app store, there's an overwhelming amount of it to choose from. How do you know what's good? Well, I've tried a few over the last 10 years, and honestly, I thought they were mostly crappy. They're usually either dense walls of mediocre text, and then a single choice of one or two story paths, or graphics-heavy romances with very little substance. My interest was piqued in a company called Choice of Games, when three of their titles were nominated for Nebula Awards this year in the newly created Game Writing category. If you don't know, the Nebulas are awarded by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and if you're not a speculative fiction reader like I am and wanted a recommendation, I'd probably suggest something that was Nebula-nominated. So when the SFWA says, this is worth your attention, well, they have my attention. Choice of Games produces a special kind of interactive fiction that blurs the lines between novel, resource, and relationship management game, solo RPG, and mobile game. COG uses a system they've developed called Choice Script to go beyond traditional choose-a-path style narratives. The choices you make, your relationships with other characters, and even your personal feelings within the story all contribute to how the game plays out. You have a stat screen you can reference, and it's different for every single game. In The Martian Job by M. Darusha Wem, I was a safe cracker helping pull a casino heist on Mars. Some of those stats are focused on what kind of technical expert you are based on the choices you've made. Are you a whiz with digital locks, or are you a traditionalist with a stethoscope and sensitive fingers? But most of them are focused on who you are as a person. 
Are you just in it for the money, or are you swayed by the political machinations swirling around you? The relationship management system in ChoiceScript is massively inclusive. You can choose to ignore, befriend, or even romantically pursue other main characters in every book regardless of their or your chosen gender representation. Every game I've played allowed me to choose between he, she, or they, and in a few cases, they, and in some you're given options about how masculine or feminine you present yourself to other characters regardless of your chosen pronouns. It's hard to talk about how much I'm enjoying playing these novels without giving away plot points, but I can tell you a little bit about each of them. Since I've already touched on The Martian Job, I also played the other two Nebula-nominated titles. In Road to Canterbury by Kate Hartfield, you are a 14th century peasant on a pilgrimage along with Geoffrey Chaucer, but it's really a spy novel. You're balancing a personal influence and subtly attempting to sway opinions about France to stop the Hundred Years' War. The third nominated game, Rent of Ice by Natalia Theodorodou, was extremely dark and disturbing neo-noir about the pain people choose to inflict on themselves and the horrors of VR and our detachment from other humans. It's a real 20 minutes into the future moral quandary that I wouldn't say was exactly fun, but was very, very good. I also played Gilded Rails by Anaya Lay, a 19th century railroad management game disguised as a love story. And I tanked this one pretty hard, so I need to have another go at it. All the choice of games titles are well over 100,000 words, which is about novel length, but Gilded Rails is over 300,000, so I didn't even touch probably three quarters of the possible content. I ran through it pretty quickly, and I didn't really achieve any of my goals, and ended up totally broke, but relatively happy. So unlike the choose-your-own-adventure books, you don't get halfway through a COG title and just die because you made a bad choice. On your playthrough, you'll get a full experience story, even if the ending is just well, you didn't do any of the things you were supposed to do, and you're not really any worse off except that, oh, you got banned from military service and you reconnected with your estranged sister. My favorite book so far, though, has been Hollywood Visionary by Aaron Reed, which is a resource management story about an independent 1950s movie studio, The Blacklist, and trying desperately to stay on budget while keeping your stars from strangling each other. It was stellar, and I can't wait to play it again. Many of the Choice of Games titles are free to play the first few chapters, but some you do just have to buy outright. They're mostly between four and five dollars, which is significantly less than the price of a retail ebook, and I think a good value given their replayability. I bought all mine through the Google App Store, but they're available on the Apple Store and on Steam as well. If you're already a person who mostly reads on their phone like I am, they will fit seamlessly into your digital fiction lifestyle. So who should try a Choice of Games interactive novel? People who are looking for solo narrative games. People who want to play RPGs but don't have a group to play them with. People who have fond memories of choose-your-own-adventure books and people who love feeling feelings and want to feel them in resource management games. I give Choice of Games 10 out of 10 fingers as bookmarks to hold your place in the CYOA in case you died accidentally. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. At the beginning of 2019, I set myself a goal to refine my collection. It's an informal goal with no set numbers or budget, but the basic idea is to reduce my overall collection only buy quality games, and focus more on upgrading the games I own that I love. As a result, we're now in June, and I've purchased just four titles, a dramatic drop from previous years. One of those four games is Peter McPherson's Tiny Towns, published in 2019 by AEG, and this game absolutely deserves its place on my newly improved shelves. Many people find the puzzle found in Tiny Towns reminiscent of the popular app game Triple Town, and I can see why. Both games involve placing a single item into a free space on your board each turn, in the hopes of creating the right pattern to transform into something else and free up more space. In tiny towns, those resources turn into a building that occupies just one of the spaces previously taken up by the pattern, leaving the rest of those spaces free to build something new and hopefully continue building your town. 
Unlike the app, which is a single player trying to last as long as possible, the tabletop game is a competitive game, with different buildings scoring points in different ways, and each player trying to create the most prosperous town once everyone runs out of space. Some of their buildings will score based on the things adjacent to them, others based on the town's features overall, and others don't actually score, but will have made it easier for the player during the game. Although the game comes with wooden pieces for six different buildings, the variety of buildings in your game isn't limited to this number. Apart from the cottages, which are always used, the other building pieces each have four associated cards showing different options, only one of which will be used in each game. So depending on the set of cards chosen, a game can progress and score very differently from the last one. Each player also has a unique monument card that only they can build, and these monuments can have some pretty powerful abilities or the opportunity to score a lot of points. And the variety doesn't stop there. Another aspect of the game that has options is the very method in which resources are even chosen. There are five resource types in the game, and the pattern required for each building is very specific, though players can rotate or mirror it. In the standard game, players will pass around a wooden hammer token to designate the master builder. The master builder announces a resource type to start the turn, then everyone simultaneously will take that resource and place it on their board before building anything they can and want to build. This leads to some interesting decisions as players weigh up choosing which resource they need to select versus which they might hope someone else will select for them. Plus, as the game winds down and space starts to be limited, players usually start assessing what they might be better off denying others, provided doing so doesn't also hinder their own play. As players are out and score their game once their board is full, it pays to be aware of what others seem to be building, in the hopes of eliminating someone before they earn a ton of points and being left as the last person standing and therefore making all the decisions. But if you don't want the agony of assessing everyone else's board in order to pick a resource, you can leave the resources up to fate. The game comes with a deck of cards which are also used in its solo mode. Town Hall mode has the players flipping cards to determine resources for most of their turns, with every third turn being up to each individual player to determine what they will take. This mode moves faster and focuses more on working out how to better use the same input as your opponents. I enjoy both ways to play Tiny Towns, and it's a testimony to the strength of the design that neither mode feels like an afterthought or as the lesser option. Playing up to six players, Tiny Towns offers a thinky, lovely little puzzle that can let a slightly larger group still play together instead of having to break up. It's quick to teach but greatly rewards repeated play, as placing a resource in the wrong place can hurt a lot, and more plays lets players improve their ability to get as much as possible out of the very limited space. It's also a really lovely game to look at. The wooden buildings have distinct colors and shapes, the resources are slightly larger cubes than the norm, and the cards feature great art from Gong Studios. My only complaint, actually, is that the theme is about woodland critters building towns and forest clearings, but the animal residents of the town are barely noticeable in the art, and I wish they'd be made more apparent, as when you look for and find them, they're pretty adorable. So if you like puzzles, want to outwit your friends by using the same resources better than they can, and want to support a first-time designer, then check out Tiny Towns. It's quick, playing in 45 minutes, it can accommodate different group sizes and playstyle preferences, and even when played in town hall mode doesn't feel super solitarish, as everyone commiserates with less than ideal resource options while groaning as that one player seems to find a way to make it work. It's a great game, and one I'm happy to make room for in my shelves. This has been Ruth for the 5x. If you want to talk about your favorite building sets or play modes, feel free 
free to find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. It's no surprise by those who follow me that I'm a sucker for adorable artwork. You know, bamboo-eating pandas, luscious trees, and even little barn animals. Happy Pigs, designed by Kuraki Mura and published by Yellow in 2013, is one such game in which the artwork completely drew me in. It's adorable. But surprisingly, despite the fact that it completely looks like a children's game, it's a solid short economic game that plays in about 30 to 45 minutes for two to six players. The colorful box artwork hints at what's inside. A farmer chasing a rectangular shaped pig outside of his barn, while dollar bills fly through the air behind him. The objective of this game is to grow your pigs, keep them healthy while they grow, and sell them at a profit. The game plays through 16 rounds, four rounds per season. The player with the most money after four seasons wins the game. In each round, players secretly and simultaneously choose one of four actions, buy, feed, mate, or sell. When you choose the buy action, you can buy pigs, tiles, and or fields from the market. The pigs range in price from $3 to $15, depending on its size. The piggies come in four sizes, piglet, small, average, and large. You can also purchase for $1 each a vaccine, dietary supplement, or an amulet of life. I'll explain what these tiles do later. When you buy pigs, you place them on your fields. All pigs must fit within the borders of your field and in the dotted rectangular lines that form a grid. Hence, this is why all your pigs are rectangular shaped. When you choose the feed action, all your pigs increase one size. At this point, you can spend your dietary supplement to increase your piglet or small pig double in size. When you choose the mate action, every average and large pig you own produces a piglet. At this point, you can also spend an amulet of life to produce a small pig, which is the next size up instead of a piglet. When you choose the sell action, you sell your pigs back to the market. You remove your pigs from your field, place them back in the pile in the middle of the table, and collect your money. In each round, a season card is flipped over. This is where I think the coolest mechanism of the game lies. Each card has numbers next to each action, representing the maximum times that action can be taken. So when everybody flips over their action tile, players who pick the same action must split up that total. If two people chose to mate, then there's a 9 next to the mate action on the season card. Then one person gets 5 and the other person gets four mate actions. The persons closest to the first player will always get the leftovers if the number can't be split evenly. If you don't exhaust all your actions in a round, such as, you know, you choose to mate and get four actions, but only have two pigs that are capable of producing piglets, you get a dollar per leftover action. The season card also has some kind of effect or bonus for the round. There are six cards for each season, Two are removed for each season for each game to give the game some variability. Lastly, at the end of each season, which is four rounds, all unvaccinated pigs die. This is where the vaccines come into play. You can spend a vaccine at any time to vaccinate a pig. When you do this, you just flip over the pig tile. It'll show you the same pig with a red cross on it and a band-aid on its body. Once you vaccinate a pig, it'll be vaccinated for the rest of the game. The game plays out over 16 rounds, and after resolving the last card of the last season, all players will get to sell their pigs back to the market and collect some money. The person with the most money wins the game. In the case of a tie, players sell back their fields and items for cash, and the person with the most money wins the game. Happy Pigs is essentially the life cycle of farm animals, so that can be possibly upsetting to some non-meat eaters. 
but the game is eye-catching, it's quick, and plays at a lot of different player accounts, perfect for that in-between game during game days, or something to close out the night after you've been playing much, much heavier games. I also like the quick tension of guessing which action other players will choose, and determining if you can take that chance of getting fewer actions of the one that you want. Can I just also say how adorable these little piggies are? And that's Happy Pigs! This is Meepo Lady for the Fiby. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meepo Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepoLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Designer Uwe Rosenberg has released a whole series of Tetris-esque tile placement games in which players add various polyominoes to their boards. There's his puzzle trilogy of Cottage Garden, Indian Summer, and Spring Meadow, and the heavier A Feast for Odin. Prior to all of these was the two-player game Patchwork, which Mason recently reviewed in episode 53. Most recently, we have a stripped-down version of Patchwork called Second Chance, published by Stronghold Games with art by Max Prentice. Second Chance is a multiplayer roll-and-write using cards instead of dice. Each player has their own personal grid that they fill in using the polyominoes that appear on cards as they are drawn. You start with your own unique shape that has to cover the center square of your board. For the rest of the game, the group pulls two cards at a time, giving everyone a choice between the same two shapes to add to their board. You can flip and rotate your shapes any way you want, and there are no adjacency rules to worry about, so it's very free in terms of how you want to add things to your board. Later in the game, if you start a new turn and a player can't add either shape, that person gets a second chance. They get to draw a third card that only applies to them. If they can add it, they get to stay in the game. If they can't, that person is out and the remaining players continue. That's a nice touch because it feels like the game is trying to keep you in, but in reality it's kind of unusual that the special third card actually helps you. Everyone plays until they can't play anymore, so it's not a race in that sense. At the end of the game, whoever has the fewest blank squares in their grid wins. There is also a solo mode in which you try to get below a suggested maximum number of blank squares. As with most roll and writes, the player count doesn't have a very big effect on the overall experience. You're doing the same thing regardless of the number of players. The simplicity of Second Chance is either its biggest advantage or its biggest downfall, depending on how you look at it. It seems like most people would either love it or hate it on that basis. It boils the polyomino tile placement mechanism of so many of Rosenberg's other games down to its purest essence. There is no button economy, no terrain types, point values, or special features on the tiles, and no bonuses for completing rows or smaller grids within your board. The first person to get kicked out gets to fill in a 1 somewhere on their board, and that's the only tiebreaker or scoring detail of any kind. Second Chance is very easy to teach, which is a big bonus for families and casual gamers. The gameplay is pretty light, given one's limited ability to plan ahead. However, you do have reference cards that show all of the shapes that are in the game, so you have some idea what could come up on a future turn. If you're feeling competitive, you can also look through the cards that have already been used and take note that those shapes are no longer in the game. If you're just playing casually and don't want to go down a rabbit hole of AP, mostly what the gameplay comes down to is trying to leave yourself the greatest number of options on future turns. You're usually trying to preserve your larger areas as long as possible to delay getting kicked out of the game, 
Again, not because it's a race, but just so you have more opportunities to fill in squares. Maybe it's just because the weather is warming up, but I'm reminded of an off-topic podcast episode I once listened to, in which the speaker shared his thoughts on the so-called ocean potion, that is, Bud Light Lime. His position was that if he's in the water on a hot day with all the trappings of the beach or the pool, then Bud Light Lime is delicious, but in all other situations and seasons he would reject it. In other words, it's very situation-dependent, and you might actively dislike it otherwise. To me, second chance is the Bud Light Lime of gaming. Most of the time, if I want to sit down and play a board game, that's an itch that second chance isn't really going to scratch. There's just not a lot there. But if the conditions are just right for it, like if I'm somewhere with a tiny tray table, or if I'm playing with people who don't want to sit through a rules explanation, or if my brain is too tired to make sure I can feed my family or get a certain amount of ore for round four, it becomes great. It becomes an awesome portable way to do this fun activity for a while, share it with some people or not, and see how it turns out. The decisions in Second Chance aren't that crunchy because it has been boiled a little too long, and you're probably not going to get epic gaming memories out of it. But if you don't want to get into anything heavier and you have some markers lying around, Second Chance can be a fun game in its own right, if the situation calls for it. I'm Christy, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at d6cmarie. Thank you for listening to The 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810, and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links at 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.